welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. In the beginning, Hamlet says, What a piece of work is a man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty! In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. He's the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Okay, so there's a super high view of humanity. And then some things happen in Hamlet, right? And later he's talking to Ophelia and he says this, I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious. I have more offenses in me than I have thoughts to put them in, or imaginations to give them shape, or time to act on them. What should such fellows as I do crawling between earth and heaven? We are errant knaves, all of us. Believe none of us. Go thy way to a nunnery. I love that line. Where is your father? You know, like, stay away from us. So what is it? Are human beings this beautiful pinnacle of creation, or are we evil creatures to run from? Turns out it's complicated. Turns out the Bible talks about both. And if we're bad, how are we made better? And what hope is there for human beings as a species? What's, what's our hope for a future? We're the only species that I know of that worries about those kinds of things. And I, these are fundamental questions, guys. And if your worldview comes up blank on a bunch of those, you need a new worldview. Any worldview that can't tell you what human beings are, or what they're meant for, or what their purpose is, what their meaning is, how can they be better, what kind of future they have. Like, if your worldview comes up blank on all those, that's a pretty empty place to be. And what's really cool, guys, is the scripture speaks very clearly and plainly on these fundamental questions. I don't think you guys have any idea how rich you are in meaning and purpose and identity. Like, that, you actually have answers for those questions, and they're not even, like, really hard-to-find answers in this book. This book speaks very plainly to these issues that our culture has no fundamental answers for, and so it's very practical. I mean, it'd be second only to as practical as what we already did, which is look at the attributes of God. I mean, that's, like, the most practical thing you do, who God is. Next one would be, who are we? And so the first thing I want to start with, I want to start with a very small question, which is, why do human beings exist? Okay? Why do human beings exist? And in Genesis 1.26, actually turn there because we're going to be in Genesis 1-3 through 3 a bunch. And so, like, if you wore your fingers out getting to the beginning of the Bible, it would be totally worth it for this morning. This is a good time to do that. Genesis 1.26 is this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In his image he created a male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them. And he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what were human beings made to be? And it says here they were made to be image bearers. You were made to be an image bearer of God. It says you were made in his image and in his likeness. And in ancient times, a king would, in his kingdom, put a whole bunch of images of himself all over his land, right? He had all these images, statues or something like that, to say so that anyone that entered or anyone that lived there would know, like, this is who rules this place. Okay? The person that rules this place is, is covered. All these images show who he is. And of course, in the Bible, God prohibits us from making any image of him, right? Because he's already made images of himself, and it's you. Isn't that amazing? He's already made images of himself, and it's human beings. And, and, and that's why we're commanded to honor and love all people, because 
Every single person is made in God's image. And so when you love your neighbor as yourself, you're actually loving God. You're loving the image of God in that person. And, and so we are to value and, and honor all people as um, image bearers of God, regardless of their ability or status or gender or race or wealth or age. Human equality, guys, has a very solid basis because it's based on the image that's stamped in every human being, God's image. Every human being made in the image of God. And perhaps that'll help us as we, try, we sometimes try to avoid or ignore people even in our own neighborhoods that are kind of a little odd or people that we wouldn't normally resonate with. But what, what this text is saying is they are made in God's image. The more we get to know people, even people that don't know the Lord, we'll learn more and more about who the Lord is. And so why were we made in God's image? First thing we were made in God's image for was to be kingdom rulers. And that's a very unusual thing for people to hear. And, but it's true. Genesis 1.26 says, let them have dominion and to fill the earth. And some of you families are really good about that. You know, you're really filling and subdue it. Um, human beings were created to rule in God's kingdom on earth. Just like you guys remember how um, uh, Joseph was a ruler under Pharaoh in Egypt. We are called to be rulers in this creation, in his kingdom under God. That's what we were called to do. And we were called to steward and develop this beautiful creation, to cultivate it and manicure the, the world in such a way that it brings praise to God. And we were called to do that in all the kind of different cultures that God's made us. And so we were called to make all the beautiful things of culture, like different foods and architecture and technology and language and custom and art, all those things we were called to do. It's to make those so that we have a civilization that blesses all people and turns all the glory up to God, so that we look at God and he's bestowed as this wonderful, beautiful creator that's made us and this world. That's what we're created to do. Isn't that awesome? What a calling. I mean, you, you can't get it better than that. We weren't called to destroy the creation, but to cultivate it so that it will serve human beings and glorify God. And I was trying to think of, like, what's a good example of that? And the closest thing I can think of is, like, a really good national park. You know, a really good, well-designed national park to where, you know, human beings can go in there. They can enjoy it. You know, you can be blessed by it. It's not a destruction of creation, but you look at creation, you can't help but go, like, God is great. Look at what he's made. You know, we were called to do something like that with the entire um, creation, uh, that the beauty would be preserved and human beings would enjoy it and all of it would spotlight God. It would all point up to him because that's what we were created for. We were created to show off God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says that we were created for his glory and we were formed in such a way that we would show him off. Not that we would try like talk God up to make him look more glorious than he is. That's impossible right? But that we would take away any hindrances so that people could see how he really is, see how glorious he truly is. So that's our calling. That's our vocation. That's what we're here for. But what's really interesting, guys, is as you look at Genesis 2, you can see that God's after more than just kingdom rulers. God is actually after making sons and daughters. So the second thing we're called to be is children of the king. And I just want you to notice how personally and tenderly the Lord makes these humans. Take it, switch to the next chapter, uh, Genesis 2-7. It says that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So here in Genesis 2, the Lord isn't just making kingdom rulers. He's making children for himself. If you look in uh, Luke 3, when it goes through the whole genealogy of Jesus, and it, it talks about so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. When you get to Adam, what does it say? That he's the son of, son of God. 
He's making his own kids here, okay? This is a very personal and, and loving thing that he's doing. He, he actually hand-makes Adam and then actually hand-makes Eve later as well. He puts his hands, as a, as a word, he doesn't have hands, but it's, he puts his hands in the dirt and he, and he forms them out of the dust, forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. He's actually shaping their bodies with his fingers. You know, isn't that amazing? I mean, the Lord actually blows into Adam's, not mouth to mouth, blows into his nostrils and makes him a living being. It's amazing. This is personal. I mean, he loves all his creation, and you can see that, that he delights in it. But when he gets to human beings, this is personal. These are his kids. Side note. Side note is, is that Genesis 2 also points to the fact that human beings aren't just physical, but they're also spiritual. We're both body and soul. We're both material and immaterial. We're both physical and spiritual. And both parts, guys, were created very good. And there's important reasons to make that distinction. Um, there's two false views that I want to hit on real quick. They're bigger words. You can handle it. Materialism and Platonism. Materialism is the view that your physical body is all you have. The very common view that we're all just, you know, a bag of chemicals, right? We're mostly water, a bunch of other chemicals. We're just, you know, maybe like really clever primates. Sometimes naughty primates, right? And when, the, when your brain dies and when the synapses stop firing, that's all there is. You're gone. You're dust. You kill the body. You kill the human. The Bible, though, guys, gives us the good news that we're not just bodies, but we're also souls, and it's really important here because one of the most important applications is obviously death, right? Um, is in John 8, 51, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You know, well, how can that be? Well, if you trust in Jesus, your soul will not share in the death of your physical body. And I was just thinking about that this week, and I knew that, but it just hit me so strongly today, a couple days ago, that if, if we trust in Jesus, our soul will not actually take part in the death of our physical bodies. When our bodies die, if you're a believer, your soul will glide on unharmed into the presence of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredibly good news? Isn't that far better than materialism? In Philippians 1.23, uh, Paul says, my desire is to depart and what? And be with Christ, for that would be far better. And that's not all of salvation. I'll talk about it later, but we're actually going to be gloriously reassembled later too. That we don't stay just soul. Um, the other view that I think is really important to hit on is the view of Platonism. And Platonism is the view that you have a body and a soul, but the body's evil. Soul's good, body's evil. Your body's the source of all your sin. You, you have a good soul, real nice soul, trapped in a very bad body, and salvation is being freed from your body. Okay, now I know you, uh, you just heard that and you thought, well, that sounds like a lot like what I believe. That's Platonism. Okay, that's Plato. That's not our guy. Jesus is our guy. Bible teaches that we are both body and soul, that our real self is not our soul. Our real self is both. We belong with both, body and soul. And biblically, our body and our soul are both fallen, right? We have fallen since the fall. I'm getting ahead of the schedule there, but I have fallen, and he will redeem both. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5.1. Actually, you know what? I have a slide of 2 Corinthians 5.1, so if you, um, you know, have a hard time getting there, you could stay in Genesis if you want. For we know, he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.29, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made not with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. Anybody feel like that way this morning? Being burdened, 
Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. For what is mortal may be swallowed up in, by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, our aim is to please Him. And I just want to show you in this passage, there's actually three levels of uh, quality existence. Okay, and the top level of quality existence is what I've got there is the best, which is that our, our top level of existence would be that we were, our, our souls would be made new, we'd be completely redeemed inside, and we'd be completely redeemed outside. So we're talking resurrection body. When Jesus returns, he makes our bodies new. He eliminates all sin from us. We never have to be tempted again. We never have to carry the weight of sin again. We don't have to deal. The presence of it is eliminated. Is that great? That's the top level of existence. And he has um, some others here. He says, at, at, um, when we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Okay, well, that's good. We can, we can live right now in a way that, um, that pleases him in the body. Um, we're away from the Lord, but we have this spirit with us, and we have this, this life that we're living out here. Next quality of life, with the, the better one, would be that we would be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay, So you're in a good spot right now, the Holy Spirit, you live in life for Jesus. Next best thing would be for you to be absent from the body, but, but be with the Lord. And then, but that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is that someday you get a resurrected body too. So you've got kind of this good, better, best. You know, when we were picking out the parts for our house, there was like, you could tab this tile, that's good, and then you got better, and then you got the best one right here, you know? And that's what this is, that we have something to look forward to. When you die, you go to be with the Lord. You have something to look forward to even beyond that, is that when he returns, he gives you a new body, and we'll all have those resurrection bodies. And so Platonism says that being disembodied is awesome. Paul says, no, we want to be embodied in resurrection bodies. And guys, there's a real shift today in what it means to be, you know, live out the human life. I mean, we really, as a culture, are downplaying bodily presence. And I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but we're, we're downplaying that. More and more, we're living as digital souls on the internet, okay? More and more people live as digital souls on the internet. They don't get together for dinner. They don't get together for coffee. They don't have people over. They don't practice hospitality. They just engage with each other as digital souls. That's not what we were meant to be. I mean, I'm not against technology. I love technology. Um, I love new products, as anyone else does. But guys, we are becoming a culture where we have just digital friends. We have digital followers. Um, you know, people are involved in pornography, some sort of a digital sex. Um, they're involved in, you know, they have groups, affinity groups that are digital groups. Um, there's, you know, many of our kids, all they do is digital play. Um, you know, people spend countless hours manicuring their digital image. Some people even prefer digital church. And so they just listen to things online and stuff like that. Guys, it's not what we're designed to be, you know. Uh, it's not that technology is a bad thing. It's just that if we are becoming more and more physically isolated from each other, there's going to be costs. And I think if you go online and just look up the, the psychological costs of the path we're going on, it's pretty bad. You know, and it's so interesting. I got together with one of the guys from church this week, and we had coffee and stuff. He texted me later. He's like, it was so good to be together. And what's funny is, is that this particular guy, we text, we talk on the phone and stuff like that, but there was something about sitting down, have coffee, open the scriptures, and talk to each other. We're human beings that are embodied. And I would just like to challenge you guys, as the culture becomes more and more digital like this, we have a real opportunity to shine as lights by being physically present for people. Like, you could show up to someone's house and be a huge light. 
for the gospel. Isn't that weird that something like that could be such a, such a big advantage? I mean, things like, here's some practices I think we could all do that would make us huge lights in the culture. One is practice hospitality once a week. If you set aside one night, you're going to practice hospitality. This is doable. Um, I won't sh- do a show of hands, how many people do it now, but it's very low, okay? Just know it would be very few hands. Um, so hospitality once a week. Set apart one particular night. It's Wednesday, Thursday, and you just plan on inviting somebody, you know? And if you invite people in this church or in anywhere, you invite them to dinner, it's going to take forever for them to actually come. You're probably going to have to invite them for weeks or months until they finally come. Um, very common thing that people do as well is they'll say they're going to come, and about two hours before, they'll say, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make it, which is like kind of letting me down easy, you know? And then, right, you know, like 30 minutes before, oh, I'm not going to make it. Don't do that to each other. It's weird. The, the cost now of breaking commitments have become so low because you can just text. You don't have to talk to them. You don't have to face them or anything like that. But let's push in, and when you don't feel like going out for dinner with those people or getting together with them, push. It's a biblical value, guys. So hospitality once a week. This is not my laws for you, but just I think this would be great. I don't think it's burdensome. Hospitality once a week. Coffee or lunch with somebody once a week. Gathering here once a week. I think it would be very wise for you, this, once again, not my laws for you, but to have digital free hours in your day. A lot of people have found it helpful that when they get home, they put the phone like in a drawer or something like that, and they don't bring it out for a couple hours. Um, you know, there's no crisis that you, I mean, well, we got a fireman here. So, I mean, there could be a crisis that you need to actually like respond to, but most of you, and we got a cop too, other than you guys, most of you could put your phone in a drawer and have no issues. Nobody needs you that bad. Um, having digital free days. I love to like leave my phone, go to the beach. Don't have my phone with me. I, some of you like got twitchy when I said that. You were like, you know, like you're the one that needs it. Okay. But I've gotten ahead of myself. So um, look at how tenderly the Lord makes these people. So he forms Adam, going back to Genesis 2-7, he forms him by hand, and he breathes in a living soul. Personally forms him. You know that Psalm 139 says the same thing of you? That he knit you together in your mother's womb? That it says he made you in secret? That he saw your unformed substance when, and, and that all the days of your life were in his book, every one of them, before you were even born? He formed you personally as well. And look at in verse 15, he takes Adam and he, he places him in the place he's going to live. Very tenderly, he has a nice little spot for him, and he goes, here you go. And, and then he very personally and tenderly teaches Adam in verses 15 through 17. As a father would teach his kids, he teaches Adam what his identity is. Here's what you are. Here's what you're called to be. Here's what you're called to do. In verse 15, he tells him that he's there to, to work it and keep it. Really cool words. The work it is like gardening. He's there to do some gardening. And the keep it is to defend it. It's actually a word that's a military word. It's he's to defend the garden from the serpent. He's to cultivate it. He, he tells Adam what's true. He gives him reality. He, he tells him what's good and right. He gives him morality. He, he tells them that there's just one thing that they can't do. They can eat from every tree of the garden, but there's just one tree. This is very generous. Just one tree he can't eat from, but all the rest he can eat from. And so you see what he's doing here? He's giving Adam his identity. Who are you? He's giving Adam his purpose. What are you here for? He's giving Adam truth, reality. He's giving him morality. He's telling him what's good and right. And he does this as a father would teach his own kids. He's doing this with Adam. Isn't that cool? And then Adam shows him that he needs a companion in verses 18 through 20. So he, he, Adam doesn't know yet that he's lonely. 
uh, God realizes this is a problem, and he shows them gradually, like, you need a companion. You need a wife. And there's the naming of the animals and all this stuff. And so God's just having a talk with him there as a father saying, hey, you know, you're not doing so great on your own. I know you think you are, but, you know, like, all your furniture is, you know, camping stuff. And, and you need, really need to, to meet somebody and, and have a family. And, and so he does that. And then, and then he personally crafts Eve. I love this. He acts both as the surgeon and the anesthesiologist. He puts Adam into a deep sleep, and he, and he takes some material from his rib, and as a surgeon, he, he does this. Or a better example would be as a new dad, it's like he's at the hospital, and he's waiting for his daughter to emerge and have her first breath. And he's very patiently and excited and, 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 and eager, and then he sees his daughter emerge. He brings his daughter out of, of Adam's side, and she's radiant, and God delights in her. His very own daughter. And then he's all excited and he presents her to Adam. He goes, oh, he's going to love this. You know, and he wakes up from his groggy sleep and he, he shows Adam Eve. And then he's the matchmaker. He's also the wedding planner, right? He's like the first dad to walk his bride, the bride, the daughter, down the aisle to, to meet Adam. I mean, this is the kind of relationship with God that we were created to have. That he would be our father and we would be his sons and daughters. And God is very personally and, and, and fatherly invested in human beings. It's so good to be human, guys. It's so good to be human. It's, we're made in his image. We're his favorites by far. We're the favorites of his creation. He talks about everything being good, and then when he makes man, what does he say? Very good. He's all, this is what I made this for. You know, isn't that amazing? It, and, and, and it just hits us like when we think about this, how good God is. Isn't he good? Isn't he loving? Isn't he generous? And then we start to think, like, we have really, really, really wronged him. <laughs> you know, if this is what God is like, and then for us to later not want him is, is a huge crime. And, and, and that's what I want to go to next, is that we've made a mess of ourselves, right? Um, something went wrong. And everybody knows something went wrong. Even people that don't read the Bible and don't go to church, they know that there's something wrong with human beings. We're all disappointed, in one another, right? And if we're really honest, we're actually pretty disappointed in ourselves. We all realize somehow, guys, that we're not living up to the purpose we were made, right? Even people that aren't Christians go like, this isn't the way people should be, which is interesting because if we really believe that we got here by just blind, you know, kind of a natural selection type, this strong eats the weak, it's so weird that now we're bothered by it. You know, if we got here by the stronger dominating the weaker, and then now all of a sudden we go, we see the stronger dominating the weaker, and we go like, well, that's not right. It's weird if that's the way we got here that we'd have a problem with it all of a sudden. But we know down deep inside of us, guys, that, that human beings were made for something better. We were called to a higher standard, and we've fallen short from that. Have you ever found yourselves just going like, what's wrong with people? You know, maybe you're on the freeway or whatever. I'm not that guy. I'm probably the guy making you irritated because I'm like, why is everybody mad on the freeway? You know, I'm totally happy. It's like, okay, I must be the guy with people behind me. But have you ever had that thing where you're just like, what's wrong with people? Well, Genesis 3 tells us that what's wrong with us is we've turned our backs on this wonderful and loving God who made us and gave us everything. And for some reason, guys, it just wasn't enough for us. We wanted to be rid of him. We wanted to be free from him. And I say we, even though we weren't there, because this story, guys, echoes in every one of our lives. When you read the story of the fall, you realize that your life is an aftershock of that great earthquake, right? That we have played out the same story. Look at Genesis 3-4. The serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. God said to them that they would die the day they did it, and they ate it, and they did die. 
They died that day. They didn't die physically, but they died in a different way that's far worse. They died to God. They became dead to God. And you ever had a relationship like, or something like that where somebody, you know, basically you're dead to them. And, and that's what Adam and Eve, they became dead to God, which is way sadder than physical death. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that everyone ever since has started off life in a state of deadness to God. You know, and, and our deadness to God affects every single part of our lives. It's a pervasive depravity where sin affects every part of us. Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And then this is interesting. No one seeks for God, the real God. Having turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we see in Genesis 3-7 the effects of this. Their eyes are open, right? And then they realize they're naked. And then they try to kind of cover themselves with this fig leaf thing. And the Lord comes into the garden and they hear the sound of him. And what do they do? They flee, right? They run away from him. And, and they hide from him. And the Lord calls out to the man and says, Where are you? And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to? And the man said, The woman you gave me, uh, she gave me the fruit to eat and I ate. And what we see there, guys, is you guys are laughing. What we see there is, is alienation, right? Alienated from God alienated in some way in ourselves, like we're just not right inside, alienated from each other, you see that with him and his wife, and then alienated from creation. First, alienated from God, they hid, guys. This is the one person that made them in his image, he loves them, he parents them, he gives them paradise, he gives them the highest place in his creation, he introduced them, he brought them together, and all of a sudden now they're dead to him. He's a person to flee from. He's a person I don't want too close to me. And, and I love the question that the Lord asks here. He says, where are you? And I think as we're thinking about this story, you should think about that for yourself. Where are you? You know, if, if when God just tries to draw near to you, do you flee? Are there parts of your life you don't want him in? Are there parts of your day you wouldn't want him showing up? Where are you? Where are you with him? And, and, and then they're alienated within themselves. It says that they knew they were naked in verse 7. Uh, creatures like us, guys, we're created for covenant love with God. And if we try to run away from that, we fall apart. That's what you see. You see human beings, we fall apart without God. Like, like an astronaut that decides that his helmet is too impinging, and he decides to take it off in space, right? We, if we try to cast off God, find that we actually need him a whole lot more than we did. We implode on ourselves, and, and that's what you see happening with these people. I mean, we wanted freedom from God, but at what cost, guys? I mean, at the cost of not knowing your identity, right? Who are you now without God? If you no longer identify as God's beloved, then who are you, right? What do you replace that with? Really, seriously, what do you replace that with? You're God's beloved son or daughter, and you're like, no, I don't want that. I want what's better, like, what do we replace it with? Or purpose. What do we exist for? If you no longer are here to exist for the kingdom of God, what do you exist for? Are you just here for the likes and comments? Are you here for the drinks and snacks? Are you here to buy a few things you can't take with you? You know what I mean? There's an emptiness if we, if we cast them off. There's a band called the Decemberists, and they have a song where they say over and over again, what were you meant for? What were you meant for? It says it over and over again. So you're wondering, like, oh, I wonder what the answer is. What were you meant for? What were you meant for? And then near the end of the song, it says, whatever you're meant for. There's no answer. 
And that's our culture, right? Our culture has no answer of what you're meant for if you weren't meant for him. Truth. You know, what's truth? If I no longer look to God as the source of truth, where am I going to find truth? Am I going to find it in movies? Am I going to find it on YouTube? God bless you. Are you going to find it on the news? You guys realize, and you guys are very politically different, you guys. I mean, we have, I, I, I know when I say this, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm sure you're all one. No. I, I pray to the Lord regularly that you will not talk in the foyer about <laughs> politics because I worry what would happen. But um, you guys, I, I don't know if you realize, you guys have completely different sources of news. That's why you guys don't agree on things. Have you ever put them side by side? They're, it's like you're in a different reality. It's the same story a lot of times. It's a completely different story, though. And everybody's like, yeah, but mine's trustworthy. Who says? I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. I would question that. Before you, you know, kind of go off on somebody in your family or somebody in the church over something you read online, you should really second guess whether you even got the right story. There is this completely opposite. So, anyway. Where are we going to get truth if we don't get it from him? Morality. How are we going to know what's good and right if we don't get it from the Lord? Are we going to go off what feels right? And that's an option. Or we could go, you know what, I know what's good and right by the people around me and what they approve of. There'd be a lot of times in history where that would have been the wrong move, right? A culture, you know, whatever they say is good and right is good and right. We can, that's a very shaky ground for, for knowing what's good and right. So when we cut ourselves off from the Creator, guys, we cut ourselves off from these basic questions. We can't answer who we are or what we're here for or what's true or what's right. It's a freedom, guys, but it's a freedom from the one who loves us the most and gave us the highest calling any creature could have. And it alienates us from each other. You guys laughed at this part, but when Adam was confronted um, about his sin, you know, what did he say? It's her right? What was the penalty for eating the fruit? Death, okay? So he's like, kill her! That's pretty dark, <laughs> right? That's pretty dark. And, and when we know that we've sinned and we have no way to cover it up, you know what we do? We try to make ourselves feel more righteous. And one of the main ways we try to make ourselves feel more righteous is by pointing out the sins of others, don't we? It's like morality is a ladder, and if we can throw a few people down on the lower rung, then we're up higher, right? And we live in a culture that's like this, a very judgmental culture. We live in what a lot of people call a call-out culture, and there's a reason for that, right? Call-out culture is when you're constantly looking for people that don't kind of fit the societal morality, and then you nail them, right? You nail them in whatever way you can. Because it turns out, guys, when we rejected God as judge and his law, we didn't get less judgmental, we got more judgmental. Isn't that weird? Because everybody always thinks like, oh, Christians are so judgmental, the church is so judgmental. Have you guys looked lately at your social media feed? It's not like we got freed from that, right? It gets worse because there's this sense of like, I'm not right, I know I'm not right, how can I feel better about myself? I can feel better about myself by having somebody lower on the moral rung than me, right? And, and so that's what we do, and that's a normal human thing. We've did it way before social media, so that's not the problem. But I'm just saying that when we abandon God as judge and his law, we don't get less judgmental, we get more judgmental. I mean, you look at our culture, and it's way more judgmental than Puritan New England, where the Scarlet Letter, you know, book was placed, right? Uh, where you see her wearing the Scarlet Letter. You can wear the Scarlet Letter and be excommunicated very well in this culture. And guess what? There's no forgiveness and there's no grace. Once you've been run over by that train, there's no getting up. And so we look at each other and we judge, like, you know, are you environmental enough? Are you young enough? Are you woke enough? 
Are you parent enough? I mean, how much parenting shaming is going on? What's that about? There's a, there's a heart issue behind that, right? Are you patriotic enough? Are you working hard enough? Are you fit enough? Are you healthy enough? Are you enlightened enough? We're a culture of judges with no grace. Looking to excommunicate people. They were alienated from each other. We're alienated from creation. Look at verse 18 of uh, Genesis 3. He says that thorns and thistles are going to come up. So Adam's going to still go to work, but it's going to be hard because the creation is going to be against him. And so what we're seeing now is that we're no longer kings and queens of creation. The creation no longer obeys us. Creation is no longer friendly to us. George Whitfield, the, the famous um, Great Awakening guy, he said this. He said that dogs bark at us and tigers want to eat us because they've taken up God's side of the quarrel. Isn't that cool? Dogs bark at us and tigers want to eat us because they've taken up God's side of the quarrel. Have you guys ever noticed how much stuff you need to pack to keep your family alive one night of camping? It's bizarre. You need a trailer, right? You were going one night, you know, and there's all this gear. Why? Because creation's hostile to us, right? Um, it's no longer our friend, and we're no longer its friend either. We're not stewarding it. We're exploiting it. The creation is no longer under our dominion, and the most obvious example, guys, that the creation's not under our dominion is physical death, is that we die. I mean, that is the most clear sign that creation is not for us, and I just want to say, guys, Genesis 1 to 3, know how to tell that story. Read that story over and over again and learn how to tell that story because it has amazing explanatory power for where we are right now. I mean, a lot of times people go like, oh, I don't know about those first few chapters. Those first few chapters, guys, explain where we're at in a way no other story does. And look at this. God is still generous to Adam and Eve. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, it says, the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He takes this blood covering and he covers over their nakedness. And in verse 22, it says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take hold of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, he put what? He put a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard it. That was grace too. He didn't want human beings to stay in that fallen state. And what's so awesome, guys, is that even now he calls out to us wanting to give us back our identity. He wants to make us again his children, right? He wants his sons and daughters to come home. He wants to give us purpose again. He wants us to live in and for his kingdom. He wants to give us his truth, right? Jesus said, my, my truth will set you free, right? He wants to teach us what's good and right. He doesn't even just want to teach us what's good and right. He wants to put his law in our hearts and put his spirit within us so that we actually want to do the things he wants us to do. Isn't that amazing? Because real freedom, guys, is not just knowing what the right thing is, but wanting to do it and being able to do it. And that's what he gives us in the spirit. And Jesus Christ made that possible, right? He made it possible through the cross. Jesus made it possible for us to get back in the garden. You guys remember the angel with the flaming sword at the door? Jesus Christ took that flaming sword for us, right? On the cross, Jesus Christ took the flaming sword of God's judgment so that we can enter the garden, enjoy his presence, and eat of the tree of life and live forever. He lets us back in. He's always wanted to get us back in. That's why he sent his son. And like those animal skins... Jesus is the blood sacrifice that covers our nakedness, that covers our sin, and makes us right with him. So I just want to ask you this morning, knowing what you know of God from those first few chapters, will you take that offer? You know, will you take the offer of coming home? You know, pays your debt, makes you his son, you, you his son or his daughter, he gives you his presence, he makes you new.
This is a message that, that's available for you even this morning. I mean, you know, during worship or whatever, you're to pray and just ask the Lord to welcome you home. He'll do that through Jesus. You turn from your sin and trust in him. And when you receive that message, what's cool is, is that you don't just like kind of get salvation. You also become wonderfully alive to God all of a sudden. And there's some of you in this room that I'm thinking of right now as I'm thinking about this, that even this year, even in the past few months, came amazingly alive to God. You didn't just sign up and decide, you know what, I'm going to start doing this thing and I'm going to try real hard. You're alive to God now. You love him now. You're wonderfully alive to him. And, and you're finding the joy of being in his presence. Guys, nothing shows us more that we we're made for God than how ridiculously happy he makes us. Have you ever been ridiculously happy? You know, with him? I'm not saying it's all the time, like you're just driving around. <laughs> you know, it's not like that kind of a thing. But those times when you're with the Lord in the quiet, or, you know, maybe you see something, or you start to pray, and you just sense his presence. Like First Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Has said that? That tells us something. That tells us we were made for him. And as we gather as a church, guys, we're gathering as a new humanity. That's what this is. I know it doesn't look that fancy. What, what this is, is this is a gathering of new humanity. You guys are the beginning of the new creation. You're a new kind of people. You're alive to God. You're alive within. You're alive with each other. You're learning how to live as redeemed humans. And you say, well, you know, it doesn't always look like that. I know. It's messy, right? Because we're, we're disciples of Jesus, Okay? Like, if you're a disciple of, like, Steve Jobs or something, that's easy. Okay? You're a disciple of Jesus. Of course you don't live up to that, right? Of course that's difficult, right? But his spirit's been put within us so that we can actually, over time, learn to do all the things Jesus commanded by the power of the spirit. We're learning to live as new creations. And as we do that, and we actually live close and tight with each other and in each other's lives, Eugene Peterson said that the church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. Isn't that amazing? I just love that. A colony of heaven. We gather together, we're a colony of heaven in a country of death. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this family is a family of new creations? Do you believe that this is an outpost of the kingdom? And I know a lot of times it's hard to think that way. It's, you, know, you see each other's sin, you see your own sin, you, see, you, know, you don't see as much progress as you like to see. You're not just like, wow, this is a new humanity. You know? But if you look deeper, you see that God is transforming people. And I just want to challenge some of you who have maybe been in the church a really long time, and you're just super cynical. That's super common in our valley. I feel like I'm like the most, like, I don't know. I, sometimes when I talk to people, they're very cynical. I feel like, I still believe in this. You know, like, like, and I've been around the church a long time, and I've seen its flaws. I still believe in it. Like, I don't see any reason not to. But some of you guys, you stay in church, but you're cynical. You've grown too old. Your spiritual imagination's gone. You're like a full-grown church cynic. Guys, there's no beatitude that says, blessed are the cynics, for they see through everything. Okay, that is not one of the beatitudes. Blessed are the cynics, for they see through everything. Don't you get tired of seeing through everything? Do you want to, like, you know, just ask the Lord to give you a childlike heart for his kingdom. Because Jesus said, he said, unless you turn and become like a child, you never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, we need to believe like a child that our father's really at work here. We need to trust him that he's doing something real. So one last part. What about creation? So I said, you know, live to God, live within, live to each other. What about creation? Take a look at Hebrews 2.6. I had David read Psalm 8 because it's quoted here in Hebrews 2.6. And it says this. I don't hear pages moving. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Hebrews 2.6. 
It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? That's Psalm 8, right? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Humans are. You have crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. And then the writer of Hebrews comments, now in putting everything under subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Still talking about humanity. He's quoting Psalm 8. And he's saying, you get him in this big position, ruling in your kingdom over earth. And he says, um, nothing's outside his control. And then look at verse 8. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Well, no duh, right? Like, we don't see that, right? We don't see creation subjected to us. We still see disease and death and accidents and fires and floods and earthquakes and, you know, mental afflictions and physical afflictions. And we as humans, we try to tame all these things, and we should. That's what we're called to do. But we don't see humans reigning over creation, right? And most obviously, we don't see it in our own deaths. We don't see it right now. But then look at verse 9. It's so cool. We don't see everything subjected to humans. And then listen to this. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And it's a different him. Him who? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and suddenly you see what human beings were meant to be, right? And you see that he's walking around, and he's, he's defeating death, right? He's defeating demons. He's defeating disease, right? Even the wind and the, and the waves obey him. It's obvious that he is what human beings were meant to be, right? It's God come in the flesh as a man, and then on the cross he defeats all those for us to regain our place in creation. And verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't that awesome? And Jesus becomes a man, he dies in our place, and he defeats all the power of evil on this planet. And then he'll come back, right? And he's going to come back, and he's going to restore both our full humanity and all of creation. I just want to read these passages for you real quick. But he'll come, and he'll restore humanity. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not be grieved as those who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What is that? That's the immaterial people. You die, your soul goes to be with the Lord. He's going to return with those souls, right? And for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ... So he's coming down, he comes down with their souls, he raises their bodies. It says the dead in Christ will be raised first. Body, soul put back together, gloriously reassembled the way we were always meant to be. Body and soul made new and right and holy before him. And then it says, and then we who are alive and are left will be caught up with them together in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Isn't that awesome? He's going to restore our bodies. He's going to restore our souls. And then he's going to restore the entire creation. Take a look at Revelation 21. He's going to basically give us back the garden, but bigger. 
Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, this is heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, adorned as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Think about that in regards to the garden. Uh, The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And then, so that's the big picture. You know, heaven and earth coming together, everything being made new. God coming to dwell with us, like in the garden. And then Revelation 22, it says, Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne and from the Lamb. So there's this city, right, in the new world. And in it, there's the throne where God is, where the Lamb is. And there's a river flowing out of it. And it sounds just like Eden, but way, way bigger. And in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river, or what? The tree of life on either side with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. So here's the tree of life, the thing that give us eternal life. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him. And listen to this, and they will see his face. Whoa. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be night no more. And there will be no need of a light of a lamp or the sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making us in your image, in your likeness, and making us for a a great purpose in your creation, to give you glory by stewarding it and developing it and crafting it and and lord we thank you that you all give us that role back and that you have a great purpose for us even in the future in that way lord we pray in the meantime that you would help us to to live for you in this world to live for your kingdom in this world looking forward to your kingdom fully coming and we thank you lord that you have a plan for us when we die for those of us who are in your Son, that our souls will not taste death, but will go into your presence immediately, into your happy presence. And we thank you that that's not the end of the story, but that you're going to give us new resurrected bodies and that we'll be gloriously reassembled just the, the way you did with your Son. And Lord, we thank you that this is all of grace. Lord, we have messed up this situation with our lives in this world so much that there is no way we can fix it. And there's no way we can fix our relationship with you. And truth be told, we didn't even want to fix our relationship with you until you made us alive to yourself. And so I pray for those who are here, Lord, and don't know you yet and aren't alive to you, Lord. I pray that they would just be attracted to the beauty of who you are. And as we read in Genesis 1 and 2 about how wonderful a being you are, how wonderful a father you are, how loving you are, how how desiring you are to share your joy with us, we just pray, Lord, that we'd be attracted to that, that we'd want to return home. And we thank you that you made a way that your son would die for us. It's amazing. Lord, we pray as we take communion that your spirit would Feed us on the presence of Jesus, that we would remember 
his, his body and blood and be moved to great gratitude and thankfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper reminds us that, of Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for us, right? That he tasted death for all of us. And the bread reminds us that he was crushed. You know, as you take that bread and you crush it between your teeth, you can remember that Jesus was crushed for your sin. He was crushed for you. He was crushed in body and soul. It wasn't just a physical thing that he endured. He endured a great spiritual cost that, that we can't even fathom as he's taking the, the cup of God's wrath. The cup reminds us that his life was poured out for us. There's lots of imagery of that, right? Of him being, his, his life being poured out for us, and he was poured out for us in a way to cleanse us from all sin. And I just want to say a word to some of you guys that you know, may have hesitation in coming forward to take communion. You're trusting in Jesus, but you, know, you had a bad week, or you had a bad year. You had a bad week, month, or day, or whatever it is, or a bad morning in the van, you know? And this is a time when, you know, this reminds us that we need Jesus, right? And so it would be totally appropriate to pray and say, Lord, I, as you know, I'm a disaster. Pray you forgive me for my sin, and then I want to receive this. Because it turns out that this is a remembrance, but it also feeds us. And it doesn't make sense for somebody that's struggling to follow Jesus, to, to withhold something from them that would make them stronger. And so make this a time to repent of sin and draw near to him and and leave fed. The Lord's Supper reminds us, guys, that we're a colony of heaven and a country of death. We're awaiting for a new land, the true garden. And in the meantime, we're being fed by this food and this drink to make us stronger. And so let's take uh, the Lord's Supper together. During these next few songs, you can do it um, alone or you can do it together. But let's take it and remember and be glad. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.